Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Welcome everyone and thank you for tuning in today. My name is Roberta Barbiolini and I'm the Technical Manager here at Biopractica. Now in today's podcast episode, we'll be looking at the benefits of using magnesium citrate for female reproductive disorders. And joining me today for this fascinating discussion is Jade Walker from Geelong in Australia. Now Jane is a passionate naturopath with three years of experience in clinic as a natural medicine practitioner. She focuses her clinical practice on female reproductive health, digestive health, and the intersection between these conditions. And in particular, Jade has a specialised interest in endometriosis, in chronic fatigue syndrome, and in SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. She sees clients from all over the world with these conditions. And as well as running her successful clinical practice, Jade also shares her clinical expertise via her popular podcast, which is called The Jade Walk Away. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us today, Jade. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And maybe to start with, could I ask you how you actually became interested in natural medicine? So what attracted you to this field? Yeah, interesting. So I had I uh, was living up in Townsville at the time and I had kind of gone on one of those, you know, new um, pathways in life and trying to figure out what it is I want to do because I had just been a journalist and I decided I was really passionate about science. So I had initially decided to, you know, I'm going to say marine biology or zoology, that kind of area. And I started studying a Bachelor of Science. But it was when I started working at a herbal store up in Townsville, it was called the Happy Herb Shop. And I became exposed to herbal medicine. And I was really fascinated by the way that people were coming in and even just getting a herbal tea and getting really amazing outcomes from it. So I then became, you know, the little the herbal tea lady that people started to see for, um, you know, little different different things. And then I met my um, now husband and he could really see within me how passionate I was about this area and just, you know, natural health. And I had also gone on a health journey and lost weight and all those things. And so really it was everyone else around me that kept saying like, why aren't you studying nutrition or naturopathy? And eventually, um, you know, I went overseas, had a bit of a realisation moment and came back and unenrolled out of Bachelor of Science, enrolled into Endeavour College um, down in Melbourne because we were going to be moving to Melbourne anyway. And and the rest was was history. <laughs> That's a really interesting journey to go from a marine biology journalist uh, to the herbal tea lady and now to a naturopathic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think we all agree that this is often a field you end up in if you have a lot of passion and an interest really in helping people be as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So maybe could you tell us a bit more about your clinic and your areas of specialisation and how you ended up specialising in those particular fields? Yeah, interesting. So, you know, for a lot of practitioners, they quite often get into naturopathy because 
they had a condition and naturopathy helped them and then they Mm. decided. So for me, you know, I think there was a secondary reason why I needed to get into this, but I didn't know it at the time. And throughout my whole life, I've I suffered from extreme dysmenorrhea um, to the point where I've been to hospital a few times and had to call an ambulance because my pain was so severe. And, you know, going through my degree, that was the one thing I was hoping I'd find answers for. And um, it actually wasn't until the end of last year that I finally received my diagnosis of endometriosis and I had Mm. suspected it for so, so long. And, you know, only about a year before that, I also uh, realised I had SIBO as well. (laughs) And that was also something I suspected for a long time because I had my uh, appendix removed when I was 15 on a holiday with family in England, mind you. (laughs) And I, you know, later realized that that was probably the reason to a lot of my digestive issues. And so going through those things myself, naturally, I became really passionate about it because I was having to trial and error so many things on myself. And so given that I am a very outspoken, passionate person, that just became my my new area that I became really passionate about. And, um, and the rest was history. And along with that, obviously, comes chronic fatigue quite often and even fibromyalgia. So that's kind of those, you know, those three key areas that I've just became quite interested in. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, you know, I think having had that sort of personal experience, as you said, with your dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, SIBO, I can see how that would probably help you a lot as well in, in empathizing with patients who present with those sorts of conditions mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and I do find that makes a big different difference because quite often I was seeing a lot of endo girls before I even had my diagnosis and and I could really I could feel what they were going through even though I didn't have that diagnosis because you know they were having such excruciating pain but quite often they'd say to me, do you have endometriosis? And I'd always feel a little bit awkward because I'm like, well, I haven't actually received that diagnosis (laughs) yet because I personally had a laparoscopy when I was 21 and they said there was nothing found. Mm. And, um, And then I had my second laparoscopy this year in January with an advanced train excision surgeon, which is the gold standard for actually identifying and removing endometriosis correctly. And that was just the game changer for me because he actually knew what he was looking for and he could see the endo. So, yeah. (laughs) And I think, I mean, you know, what that highlights for me is how liberating and and how empowering it can be for patients to get an accurate diagnosis. So, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us and with our listeners as well. Mm, Oh, absolutely. You know, I've sometimes seen people say, um, you don't need a diagnosis, which is true to some degree, like if it's really minor endo, but how do we know if it's really minor endo, you know, mm-hmm. until we actually go in there and have a look? And because symptoms vary across the board with the grading as well, like you can be grade one and, and have excruciating pain or be grade four and have no pain. So it's really tricky. And I wholeheartedly believe that getting that official diagnosis can actually be life-changing. And I guess, I mean, if we then explore this area of specialisation a little bit more, so, you know, I can understand now why you have a real interest in conditions like endometriosis, dysmenorrhea. And can I ask how you approach the treatment of these sort of female reproductive uh, disorders in your clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So I've really deduced it down to four key treatment aims now after, you know, working on myself, working with lots of women with it and, you know, with all the latest research that keeps coming out. And to be quite honest with you, 
the, the first thing that I find gets the best results is actually supporting the gut because um, we know that there is a higher presence of gram-negative bacteria in women with endometriosis found in the pelvic cavity and within the menstrual blood. So if you have, say, SIBO um, and bacterial overgrowth and leaky gut or intestinal permeability, um, then that is actually exacerbating symptoms such as inflammation and the immune system in, um, interaction as well. So often, I will support their gut health. Usually they've got SIBO, so I'll support that as well. So that would be number one. And then number two, of course, is reducing inflammation. We know it's a really inflammatory condition. And so with that, we do need to utilize, you know, diet, supplementation and that kind of thing to really get down those inflammatory markers because, again, we know there is a high presence of the cytokines and the interleukin-6 and all those kind of things in that pelvic cavity with women with endo. Mm. And then number three is definitely modulate the immune system. You know, there is a lot of debate whether endometriosis is an autoimmune disease. It certainly does act in similar ways, but then mm. there are some, some things that are slightly different to autoimmune as well. And of course, we are still lacking research and we have now been, um, you know, we've got some exciting news this year that uh, the, I think it's the Morrison government has committed nine and a half million dollars to endo research, which hopefully will bring about some more interest and more information, but definitely you know, endometriosis really is an immune condition. It's not really a hormonal condition, although hormones can, you know, exacerbate it. So number four then is, of course, supporting healthy detoxification of estrogen and making sure that we also reduce that dioxin exposure and chemical exposure that we know can disturb um, that estrogen displacement and, and balance as well. So they would be my four key treatment aims with endo. That's, I mean, that's a really holistic, comprehensive way to look at endometriosis. And I love the way you sort of frame up endometriosis as being, you know, immunological in nature, hormonal in nature, but also related to the digestive system and to inflammation. Mm. Really comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, I'm sort of interested in something you said earlier on about the fact that you had your appendix removed whilst you were on holiday in England. Doesn't sound like a great way to spend your holiday, but I'm sort of curious as to, you know, based on your experience and your research, what is the relationship between having your appendix removed, digestive disorders, and then potentially reproductive disorders as well? Yeah, really good question. So starting, you know, at the first part there with having the appendix removed, we do now know that or understand that the appendix does actually serve a role compared to the old thought that, you know, throw it out, it's not required. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, and interestingly, when I was actually going through my degree, I went to Monash Uni and went to a special talk that was held by some researchers in the gastrointestinal field. And that's when I, my eyes were open to this and they were actually looking at the role of the appendix. And the way that they explained it was it kind of serves as a backup drive for your, like a sample of your microbiome. So if you say have antibiotics or you have um, gastro or something like that, and you know, you've, you've had that big wipeout of your bugs, then the appendix kind of squirts back a little backup sample so that that can re-inoculate in the gut. Wow. Um, and so when we have our appendix removed, obviously we're compromised and we don't have that excess capability to recover from those kind of things. And so I really, you know, after that 
you know, light bulb moment and relating that to my own issues, it made so much sense to me. And then now um, having dived into the world of SIBO and there are many different causes of SIBO, but one that definitely sang true for me was, again, if you don't have that appendix, um, you don't have that um, that ability to recover, but also because there are a lot of adhesions that often are formed around the ileocecal valve. And the ileocecal valve is where the condition starts to take place because there's that reflux of contents from the large intestine up into the small intestine. And, you know, interestingly, when I had my, um, my laparoscopy in January, they found a whole heap of adhesions around that area, which I mm. always suspected that I had. So they, you know, remove, like loosen those up as best they can. You know, they may grow back a little bit. But um, and then, um, yeah, so obviously the link then between SIBO and endo can be kind of bidirectional. So um, endo, of course, can create adhesions themselves. So that can cause some, you know, irritation around that ileocecal area. Um, as well as that, SIBO, if you have that, that um, the, and you have inflammation and um, those gram-negative bacteria overgrowing, well, the, then that can actually exacerbate endo. Uh, so they kind of can go back and forth between each other. That's absolutely fascinating. You know, really interesting to see that that relationship between the appendix and gut health and then gut health and, and, and you know, hormonal health, there's almost both a physiological relationship, like a mm. functional relationship, but also like a physical one, like you're saying, where there's actually adhesions and, you know, the surgery of having your appendix removed can be part of the symptom or, or the pathoetiological mm. picture for a patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that is one of the issues about even a laparoscopy themselves, particularly if it's not done by a skilled surgeon or someone who is an advanced trained excision surgeon, they can sometimes create a little bit more damage than mm. like, so you do often find some naturopaths will say, try and avoid having a laparoscopy if you can help it. With that said, though, from what I've seen more often than not, as long as you're in the skilled hands, you do usually need that yeah. surgeon. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, maybe then if we move on to treatment, like I think you outlined really beautifully your four key priorities when you are working with an endometriosis patient, but are, are there sort of some key nutritional supplements that you find most useful in, in patients with endometriosis? Definitely. Um, first of all, we determine, you know, what is the key priority because again, with endo presenting in so many different ways. For some women, it's the pain. For some women, it's the menorrhagia. For some women, it's fertility. So... Mm -hmm. First, I have to discover what is their main priority. And that's something I've really made sure that I am just nailing every time now because I used to just kind of go down the path that I thought they wanted to focus on because, you know, I have endo, but then I realised that's not the same outcome that I wanted with my endo. Mm. So, so that's a really, a really important thing to start off with. So, um, you know, in general, some of the key nutrients that I would be using would definitely be all your uh, inflammatory reduce you know reducing inflammation with high dose omega-3 um, really good quality curcumin supplements um, high dose magnesium like really high dose and um, NAC N-acetylcysteine uh, and or broccoli sprouts because obviously mm -hmm. with the high sulfur compounds um, helping to work on that detoxification pathways um, possibly dim uh, sometimes I do find that 
you know, DIM is given out to a lot of women with endo, but sometimes it's not actually the best thing for them. So I find it's best to do a Dutch test to see what's actually happening with the three different estrogen pathways, the detoxification pathways. The other new one that I'm loving at the moment is PEA or um, pamidolethylolamide. I think that's how it's Yep. Um, such a, you know, quite a new kid on the block. And there has actually been some research behind PEA for women with um, pelvic pain with endometriosis. Um, so they looked at, I believe it was 400 milligrams a day for three months. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that did show a marked outcome on, um, on reducing that um, pelvic pain. So I've personally started using that myself as well. And I do actually find that that makes a difference. So that's quite an interesting one. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, just making sure that you're ticking off other boxes like B vitamins, zinc, you know, all those, all those um, important ones, vitamin D. That's great. And again, you know, nice comprehensive sort of treatment there and, and um, some really good evidence-based approaches as well. Like you said, rather than just jumping in straight to use DIM, it's like, you know, doing a Dutch test and looking at what exactly that patient needs as a priority. Mm, oh, absolutely. Because DIM can actually, you know, slightly alter the way that um, testosterone works and things like that. So if particularly if someone maybe has like PCOS as well, and I see that go hand in hand a lot, a lot of women then they also have PCOS and things mm. like that. So um, we just need to make sure that we're using it appropriately. Uh, calcium deglucrate is a good one as well, particularly for that um, to reduce that excess estrogen getting reabsorbed back into the body too. And can I ask, you did mention just briefly before that you use magnesium and you sort of said high doses, really, really high doses of magnesium. Mm -hmm. Can I ask what you define as a really high dose of Mm -hmm. uh, elemental magnesium? Yeah, certainly. So um, usually uh, probably it depends at what time of the cycle. So if it's like the week before the period, because that's when pain starts to kick in, I usually go around 800 milligrams to 1200 milligrams a day. Uh, so depending on their bowel tolerance as well, mm. like, yeah, so sometimes yeah. I'll start off with 400 milligrams. And this is the other thing too, again, because most of my clients have endo clients have SIBO as well. And a lot of them will have more of that methane dominant SIBO, which, you know, results in constipation. So that's why I love using magnesium citrate because that does also naturally help to soften the stools as well. So I'll use, you know, anywhere from 400 to 1200 milligrams um, to see, you know, just where they can tolerate. If not magnesium citrate, if they really just are a little bit no good with the bowels, maybe we might use magnesium glycinate um, if that sits better with them. Yeah. And I mean, yes, I can see why you described that as a high dose. 1200 milligrams, I think Mm -hmm. would be a challenge for some patients. But as you say, I mean, you know, the fact that you can monitor their, their bowel reaction to that gives you a really good sense of where you know, their tolerance level is. Yeah, definitely. And um, can I ask, are there a particular forms of magnesium that you've found give you better results clinically? Like you mentioned magnesium citrate, magnesium uh, bisglycinate. Do you find one works better than the other or, you know, what's your preference based on? Yeah, well, my preference is based on my own personal experience often. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but definitely what I see with clients, magnesium citrate, again, if they are constipated, I'll pretty much always turn to that. And then, um, yeah, magnesium bisglycinate as well. So probably a, I'd go an even amount between the two of those, just depending on their bowels. 
and yeah. what else is going on. And, you know, quite often it'll either be magnesium citrate either on its own or it might be a formula that has a few other cofactors in it as well. So just yeah. on the presentation. And what do you find is sort of a reasonable length of time for, for patients to expect before they see some improvement like do you tell them like expect it to improve in two weeks a month six months like what's your experience tell you yeah so um based again on my own personal experience and what i've seen in clients with endo it is definitely not something that you get really meaningful outcomes within the first month it can take a few months Mm. Uh, so of course there are certain things i can help them with within a month such as the energy levels heavy bleeding um, and even sometimes just removing out dairy and wheat and caffeine and alcohol because you know let's face it a lot of people are having all those inflammatory foods Um, just removing those can sometimes be a game changer within a month but You know, the other thing though, a lot of women that come to me are actually quite often quite healthy and they are already, you know, they've already read everything online. They already know all the things that they should be doing and they're still in a lot of pain. So it does take, you know, probably around three to four months to really start to get those meaningful outcomes. So it is really about um, educating them about that in the first consult to make sure that they stay with you for the ride. Otherwise, you know, four weeks, they're like, it's not doing anything, you know, it's not working. And I'm like, you've got to give it time to build up. And the research shows that as well. Like even with magnesium, there was a Cochrane review that showed that it took five months for magnesium to help with period pain. So, you know, it, it can take time. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's a really good solid evidence base to draw on as well. It's, you know, I mean, if a Cochrane review tells you it can take up to five months, then I think it's important to set realistic expectations for patients. Cause I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember the number of times patient would come and see me and they would, you know, if they're not better in two weeks, they get frustrated. So (laughs) you kind of have to frame it up for them, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, we get taught this, you know, throughout our degree, always try and also give them something that does get them relief straight away, but then work on the other stuff in the background. And I've found that that is so true and so important so that you are still showing them that what you're doing is effective. So for example, again, like I love working with fatigue and I find that I can get people's energy up like really quickly. And so usually I'll get that energy levels up within, you know, two to four weeks and that gives them the motivation Mm. to keep going with everything else. So just trying to find again, like those short-term aims and those long-term aims. Yeah, and I think energy is a great one because quite often, you know, if patients don't have energy, then they don't really have the energy to start exercising or, you know, even cook good healthy food for themselves. So if you can get them feeling better, a whole lot of other stuff can actually become easier for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big one and especially with the menorrhagia and losing a lot of blood and they're often iron deficient, that's a big one. And maybe then just a final question, Jade, what sort of dietary and lifestyle advice do you tend to recommend for your patients who do have endometriosis? Mm, This is a big one. And so much so I've now written a whole endometriosis handbook that I give to my clients. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so and I keep building on it and building on it, but every one of my endo clients get a copy of that now. So, um, but in dietary wise, there is a big list of exclusions, but a big list of things they really need to focus on. So, of course, exclusions, like we said, definitely dairy because of the A1 protein, but a lot of people are lactose intolerant, can't have casein, you know, all those things. Um, wheat, obviously, processed grains and things like that. Caffeine, alcohol. The other big one, actually, that a lot of people don't, Uh, realize or focus on is nightshades so um, I've really dived into the AIP diet the autoimmune protocol which I like to also refer to as the anti-inflammatory protocol because that's kind of what you're doing and um, and AIP focuses on eliminating all the nightshades only for you know a temporary window to see kind of what you react to but as well as nightshades also all your um, grains eggs dairy and even nuts and seeds, because these are all possibilities that can be irritating to people, particularly their gut, and cause that that uh, chronic low-grade in, inflammatory triggering kind of effect in the body. So sometimes I actually do an ARP diet with people, and they find that actually reduces our pain. So um, that's another one to consider, and maybe even just, yeah, reducing those nightshades. And then the other one is limiting red meat. Now, I certainly don't want people to get confused with me saying that you shouldn't have any meat because I I absolutely believe that you should. However, Mm. um, there is definitely some discussion around those um, trans fats that are found in meat that, you know, if you don't have a good enough omega-3 profile, then it's going to be outweighed by all those other, um, you know, omega-6s and trans fatty acids, therefore driving up more inflammation in the body. So I definitely do educate them about getting in lots of good omega-3 containing foods like your oily fish and um, and then just reducing down that omega-6 content to get those good, get that good anti-inflammatory action in the body. Then in terms of, um, you know, foods to increase, obviously a um, big one was definitely omega-3, but lots of cruciferous vegetables, obviously for those sulfur compounds that we know can help with detoxification and the, the big three spices, which is turmeric, ginger and cinnamon um, for that really warming effect. And, and even from a traditional Chinese medicine, effect you know they often look at endo as a cold condition so always just trying to really warm up the body and of course we know turmeric ginger and cinnamon are all really anti-inflammatory they've Mm. all been clinically trialed for um, period pain so making sure that they get that wherever they can and and lots of fiber lots of antioxidants berries you know all that good stuff that's fantastic. And I have to say, Jay, thank you so much for sharing all of this uh, information with us today. I think it's been really informative and, and some really good clinical tips there for people who, you know, are working in, in endometriosis. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate being asked to come on and I'm, I'm happy to share what I'm so passionate about. And I want to also just say thank you to those of you who tuned in today. We hope you found our discussion interesting and useful. Please join us again next week for another Biopractica Professional Podcast episode. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.